Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 233, and this one was recorded in Maryland. Over the weekend, I was down in Chestertown, Maryland, and prior to going, I had read some poems by a poet named Meredith Davies Hathaway. Specifically, I had picked up her first book, Fishing Secrets of the Dead, and It's full of beautiful imagery, but it's also full of pain, and it's haunting, and it's beautiful. And so I reached out to Meredith, and she said, sure, we can do one. So I went over to her house. Chestertown is is on the Chester River in Maryland, and it's also on the Chesapeake Bay. So it's a beautiful area, and the river cuts right through her backyard. So we were able to record, and I could look out on the river and play with her crazy new kitten, and it was really a great time. Towards the end of our conversation, she did uh, a reading of two poems, and that was really cool and really special. If you go to the show notes for this episode, I'll have a link to her website, and I'll also have a direct link to find her books. Uh, You can actually also find that on her website. Uh, She also teaches at a university or a college down in Maryland, Washington College, and uh, she does like poetry workshops and she plays the harp. All sorts of really cool stuff. But she'll let you know about all of that in our conversation. Also in the notes for this episode is a link to my Patreon account. That is where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks like stickers and shirts and the zines that I put out. All right, folks, short and sweet intro today. Enjoy this conversation with Meredith Davies Hathaway. Yeah, so how did I find you? Everybody asks me that when I do these. Um, I just, okay, and you'll, you'll notice I'm very long-winded. I'm a huge Anthony Bourdain fan. There's a new documentary coming out about his life in July, and in the trailer, somebody speaking about him had said he had this sort of almost like malfunction in that he always had to be going. So as soon as he would get somewhere, it's like, where's the next place? And I think I have that. So it's, oh, it's a three-hour drive to Chestertown. Well, we're here now. I should be content to just sit by the pool with a book and relax. But my brain's going, who can I talk to? <laughs> what's, what's a new experience that I can have? And so everywhere I go, I'm doing that. And because we come to Chestertown a lot, I'm like, all right, I'll limit myself to like one at a time. <laughs> uh, last time we were here, actually, I did two. I went to the alpaca farm, um, and that was cool. But I was like, who's a musician or an artist or a writer or a poet? And I was just searching around, and I found you. And then I, I bought um, Fishing Secrets of the Dead, which I'll, I'll talk about. And I was like, oh, man, I would love to talk with her. And here we are. Now I'm in your home. Here you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so thank you for having me in your home. Uh, thank you for inviting me to Complete talk to stranger you. here, so thank you. Um, are you originally from this area? No. I was born actually in um, Italy, Whoa. into a military family in Naples, and, um, which I'm very proud of, and moved almost every year of my life, Yeah. Uh, which is why when I came to Chestertown, Right after I graduated from college, I moved here intending to spend the summer. And I'm going to date myself now, but that was like 1976. 
And I've been here ever since because I just fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the idea of staying in one place, which I had never done. Um, and actually getting to know people and watching them, you know, grow old with me, you know, meeting their children and their grandchildren. And it's been a great, a great experience for me. Did you bounce around Europe as a military family or just all over? Um, mostly in the States. Um, we had a couple, my dad was ordered to Japan at one point, but there was a lot of political unrest and they ordered all the service families home. So we wound up spending that tour um, in California instead with, with no father oh. uh, for a year. And that was, that's pretty common for mill spouses as they call them now. But my mother's father had also been a naval officer, so she was used to it, but still bitter about it. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I saw Naples come up in one of your poems. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming then that growing up that way has informed who you are as a writer and a poet. I think it certainly has imbued me with a sense of um, place. And, um, and my poetry is very much about that, yeah. whether it's through my travels or about the place where I live. Um, I, I'm just very aware of the fact that... Um, that there's only a very transparent layer between me and the landscape, me and the culture, me and the language, which I'm always fascinated by. Mm. Um, and I sort of think that's because I was born in a foreign country and first heard a foreign language um, that, you know, it's all fluid for me. Yeah. And I think that's something that's probably reflected in my work. Were you able to um, pick up on writers and authors at a young age by, by bouncing around like that? Like, did you, did you learn like Italian arts or were you not there long enough? I wasn't there long enough to really, nothing I would consider art, but because my family lived there for four years, I grew up learning Neapolitan songs that my father would teach me. Uh, My dad played the accordion, um, which there's one still kicking around somewhere. I play the squeeze box now, but it's not an accordion. It's a little concertina. Um, so, um, of course, now I've forgotten the question, but... Um, it was more about, um, I would imagine, you know, like having a sense of place kind of grounds you in like one kind of culture. But if you're bouncing around that much, were you able to, um, you know, like find authors and poets and, and writers that you latched onto at a young age? I think um, the, the sense of place aspect of it, as grounding as that can be, it also... Um, it's sort of like empathy. It it travels with you, mm. and um, I think the poets that I learned um, at an early age mostly were through my mom, who taught us all to read before we even went to school. And I was raised on, you know, the Highwayman or Edgar Allan Poe, you know, that kind of poetry, which I found, you know, fabulous. To this day, I want to run away with that Highwayman. And um, so I did, I was introduced to poetry very early. My mother had a tremendous love for it, though she was not a writer of poetry, but she was an avid reader. What did mom do? Because I see her pop up a lot in your poems. Yeah, my mother was a force to be reckoned with. She was highly intelligent. She was, as I already mentioned, a military wife, um, which was a frustrating life for her. Mm. She wound up, um, she'd actually served um, in the waves um, during World War II and had worked in a a photography lab there, was very interested in photography, was actually quite a good photographer. Um, And so she was a little frustrated, I think, trying to fit into the role after the war of just like a regular old housewife and mom. She wound up going to law school on the GI Bill and um, became a lawyer and... um, 
ultimately, that was frustrating for her because my father was moving all the time and it was hard for her to practice. But eventually when they came to the D.C. area and there was some stability in his schedule, she wound up working at the Department of Justice for a number of years. Wow, that's amazing. Um, You have a poem that I really like. I had to write down the name here. But uh, growing up with brothers meant machines. And um, when I read that, I felt like a very romantic sense of childhood because I didn't grow up in a city, but I've lived my adult life in a city. And I don't know. I feel like maybe there's there's something missing. The, The type of trouble you can get into in a city is very different from the type of trouble you can get in like a, a rural or more suburban setting. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it's more generational now that kids are like growing up glued to phones and things like that. But it even reminded me of childhood and it almost feels to me like a almost historical, almost like a, a past that that is kind of dying out. But I don't know, maybe it's just because I live in a city and maybe still in in settings that are more rural, kids are still growing up that way. And when I say that way, more like, you know, like skin knees and getting dirty and running around and and getting hurt because you're falling off of bikes and things like that. Um, But I'm curious about your relationship to your siblings um, and what it was like growing up with them. Yeah, it's funny to think of one's childhood as being historic. (laughs) And yet I, I agree with you that the culture has changed so quickly and so drastically. I mean, we just ran around. Um, yeah. I mean, starting with Naples, where my three brothers were old enough to just run in the streets with like the little Neapolitan street urchins, as mm. everyone referred to them. Um, and so, you know, I was sort of raised as just a, a tag along. My my closest brother in age is three and a half years older than me. So all three were quite a bit older. And I just basically was like the little dirt ball in their, you know, in their wake. And they're, all my brothers were very interested in, you know, go-karts. Well, bikes first, then go-karts and cars. And they were rebuilding engines and they were, and, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I was a total tomboy and I really wanted to learn everything I could about cars, how to work on them. I wanted to chase after them, well behind them you know, on my bicycle. And as soon as they had motorcycles, I was on the back and just dreamed of the day when I could have my own motorcycle, which I never did, never did get one. But um, somehow I I outgrew that. (laughs) And even though I do have a boat and I like things that go fast, um, and I do have a certain mechanical ability, I'll confess that, you know, when things break, um, I'm the first person to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me see if I can figure out how to fix that. Yeah. And that's totally, that's a Davies trait that comes from my dad and my three older brothers completely. But I don't, you know, and mostly we grew up in, you know, either on military bases or in very suburban settings. Um, so it was a very safe mm. childhood. And though there were plenty of skinned knees, I don't think my parents were wrong in trusting that they could just kind of turn us loose. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, you you develop a sense of independence that again maybe I'm maybe I'm just starting to get older and like I'm I'm recognizing the disconnect between the way I grew up and the way that kids are now. But um, especially teaching kids and, and and working with youth, there's certainly a disconnect with the way that I grew up and they grow up. Um, but reading that poem really gave me like a sense of nostalgia for <laughs> for my own upbringing. I think nostalgia is in a lot of my poems. And I think one thing that I'm very um, concerned with, with my writing, particularly about 
the natural world, which P.S. we're part of, um, is the vanishing, the nature of everything mm. vanishing. And so there's a sort of, there's certainly an elegiac, um, I mean, the book that you brought with you, Fishing Secrets of the Dead, is a long elegy. But I think all my work has a sort of undercurrent of, el- of self-elegy, mm. you know, um, of what's vanishing from the world, you know, including me. What did you think that you would be doing or what did you want to do, uh, you know, as a profession when you were growing up? You know, I really was always fascinated with teaching and I mm. wanted to grow up to be a professor. And I spent 30 years working at Washington College in public relations. Uh-huh. I did eventually, um, I went back to school and got an MFA uh, in poetry and and subsequently did some adjunct teaching, which I loved. Um, but most of my career was spent writing board reports and uh, press releases and really in a, in a very different down a different alley when it comes to writing, but lots of writing. So I didn't really actually get back to poetry, having loved it early on. And as an undergrad, I didn't really get back to poetry until um, the late 90s. So, you know, this whole passion has really kind of come back to me later mm. in life than most people would experience it. And um, I still love teaching. I, I run poetry workshops and, um, and have a, you know, a writing group that I, um, that's sort of a salon that has met for a couple of years now uh, on, well, I guess we're into our second year on Zoom, but previously, you know, met in my living room. Um, and somehow teaching, to me, um, is the greatest way to be a lifelong learner. Hmm. I'm amazed at what I learn in the teaching process because you have to really think about something in order to talk about it um, in a way that you feel people will understand. And it's just really, it's a much greater depth of knowledge when you're going to share it. So I have a question about that because I taught history. Um, And while there's a lot of gray area in history, well, maybe I'll word it like this. Some of my favorite artists, like across genre music, writing, they sort of like broke the conventions of what people thought you should do within that medium. Um, I don't think Jack Kerouac was the greatest writer by any means, but, you know, he would write a three-page paragraph or like a page-long sentence with um, completely like grammatically incorrect. And that was sort of like the point or part of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you teach poetry when it can take so many different forms. Yeah. Um, first, I just have to say that I was in love with Jack Kerouac. <laughs> I mean, that, you talked about your travel lust. Yeah. And that whole road trip. And I think the immediacy of experience, so that he was reporting it kind of unfiltered with a certain belief that if he just poured it out on the page, it would communicate with the reader in some way. And, you know, a whole generation of us felt that it did. Mm. And I, I think that's in common with poetry. Um, I think there's a, a tremendous amount of blind faith in writing a poem and in reading a poem. And I'm always dealing with people who say, you know, I don't get it. It makes me feel stupid. Why don't poets just say what they mean? And I'm like, well, maybe they don't know what they mean. Mm. They don't have to say what they mean. They just have to mean what they say. Mm. And um, that's a very sort of Kerouacian notion that... Um, if you just share it, there's a damn good chance that it's universal, but only if it's authentic. And that kind of 
immediacy that he strove after isn't exactly what I do with poetry, but the authenticity that I think he was trying to, you know, trying to accomplish that we would have in common. Yeah, you you tap into something. Um, maybe this is rude of me to say to of other people, but I do think I understand exactly what you're saying. That some folks will look at poetry and almost say like, "This is kind of pretentious. Like this is almost meant in a way for me to not understand." Mm-hmm. But again, like I guess if you're writing, and it's personal, maybe it is just for the writer. Maybe it isn't necessarily even for the audience to understand exactly the point that's being made. Um, but with your writing, I'm trying not to be disrespectful of other people, but it's sort of like, I feel like it, it is straightforward and kind of trims the fat. Like I can maybe not know exactly what your experience was. Again, like I didn't grow up with you and your brothers, but it, it hits on something for me that I can connect with in my own life. And that is a difficult thing to do as a writer. Um, I don't know how difficult it is. I, I think it's difficult to write, period. Um, and I think that there's a certain accessibility in my work that you might not find in other people's. But, you know, everybody has a different goal, whether mm. it's subliminal, you know, it's just what is true to them. And there are plenty of people who write very difficult poetry that I think um, is still important work. And I don't diss the, the the New Yorker poets, for example. People are always saying, I don't get the poetry in the New Yorker. But I also hear from plenty of people who don't get the cartoons in the New Yorker. I mean, you know, so everybody brings a different a different vibe. And the poetry landscape is incredibly diverse, especially right now. Mm. And I think the kind of pretentiousness um, that you're that you perceive, somebody else might see as just challenging in a way that forces you to maybe um, like open some different neural pathways. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, just like modern art, um, you know, there's the folks that go to the art gallery and say, you know, I don't get it. And they're the folks who go, wow, my life has just been changed because there's just something there that they've never seen before. Hmm. And that can really open their eyes. And I think that poetry that's challenging um, is there's there's a place for it. There certainly is. And even though I don't feel that I write in that way, I do read poets sometimes who write in that way. And I have often been glad that I did. There's a bravery too. And I think maybe this is where in my own creativity, I hit a wall. So I will, my girlfriend's back at the house. And whenever I do these, if she's not present, because sometimes she comes, she'll say, well, how'd it go? And I'm always like, ah, I think it went okay. Right? Like I don't, I'm very hard on myself, or I'm going to give you one of these when we're done, but um, with my own writing, I'm almost afraid to like take the leap off of the creative cliff and just be like, it's done, it's ready, um, because it's not good enough or people won't like it. I've asked people this before, and I think maybe sometimes it's a hard question to answer, but do you have your own resistance as to like, this finished product is done, this is good, like I'm okay with this now being seen by the world? I have a huge resistance to that. Uh. And I've just, the only way you can overcome it is recognize it and send it out anyway. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how many, but I'm sure well over a hundred of my poems are out there on the internet in journals. And, and honestly, when I send them off, I'm like, who in the world is going to want this? 
And then I'm completely surprised when people do. And believe me, often they don't. I mean, my, my acceptance rate is pretty decent, but if you knew how many thousands mm. of submissions had gone out, um, you have to be completely immune to rejection. I think in any of the arts, because there's going to be a ton of it. <clears throat> and you just have to believe that your job is to, you know, just put yourself out there. I mean, that's keeping the gift moving. And that's your job on this planet. Mm. And if it were easy, everybody would be doing it, right? So, you know, it's hard to do that. And it requires me to, like, literally, like, hold my nose, you know, lick the envelope, metaphorically, because mostly it's online now, but, and send it out in the universe. And if somebody picks it up, you know, wow, mm. it's thrilling. And I never know what poems, honestly, in, in the moment that I'm writing them or revising them, I believe in them wholeheartedly. But after that, you know, in a slightly different light, they always kind of look strange to me or like, like failures. I always think about there's, I think there's a Seinfeld episode where this woman has these beautiful hands, but in a certain light, <laughs> yeah. they look like man hands. Yeah. I mean, my poems... Often afterwards, you know, when I'm out of the spell, they look like man hands. And you know what? I send them out anyway. And then I give readings or, you know, a, I remember a book launch. I think it was for the book that you're holding where somebody came up and asked me to sign a certain page because it was a poem that meant so much to them. Mm. And I'm like, oh, sure. I'd be happy to do that. What poem was it? Tuxedo. I'm like, really? I mean, I saw that poem as filler because you got to have 60 pages. Oh. But, you know, so... Even though I believed in it when I wrote it, you know, later it was like, who would ever care about this? Somebody did. And you just never know. So it's your responsibility to give it your all and then let it go and let the universe decide, you know, the fate of it. Is it okay to ask about, um, to ask about this book and sure. what led up to it? So yeah. uh, Fishing Seekers of the Dead is the first book that I bought. Um, and it was my first book. Right. Mm -hmm. And I read a, a, a lot of poems in different journals. Um, I had seen Valparaiso, and I thought that was in Chile, but I think it's in Indiana, right? There's like Valparaiso Review. Um, oh, no, that's, that's domestic. Yeah, okay. Um, but it is beautiful, and it is heartbreaking. And as you mentioned, the eulogy. Um, I was curious about the artistic process for this, and if it helped with closure for grief or if maybe it prolonged it and kept it alive because now like that emotion is here in ink. Yeah. Um, that's a, an important question and one that people ask all the time about art and pain. Um, first of all, there's no closure for grief. Um, no one ever closes the door on their grief. They just learn how to live with it. But I think part of learning how to live with it is feeling it was some small semblance of control regained. Mm. And I think the artistic process puts you back in a, you know, feeling some sort of, you know, agency or authority over your, your grief and your pain. And of course, you know, it's a construct because, you know, we really don't have that. But we're allowed to feel that and that helps people, I believe, process. You know, they're not going to put it behind them, but they're going to learn to have it beside them in a way that they can live with. So to me, that book is not painful. Um, and it certainly came from a place of great pain. It was a way of um, healing in a sense. Um, you know, I'm also a therapeutic musician. And one of the, we, we deal a lot with the word heal, 
which comes from, I think, Old English or probably Germanic maybe before that, but it means whole. And so the notion of healing, when you go in to play for somebody in the hospital to play the harp and try to, quote, heal them, you're not curing them, but you're trying to restore some sense of wholeness, meaning I'm a, I'm a whole human being again. And I think um, that's what art can do. And I think um, writing those poems made me feel whole again. Mm. Um, and so to me, in a sense, it's a celebratory act, though um, the grief is there, you know, and as you say, it's in amber now, you know, it's never going to go anywhere. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of appreciate that. I wouldn't want grief swept away. Mm. You know, it's, it's part of our life. And I say, we live alongside it. We never put it behind us. Are you constantly writing, like outside of the books and the publications and what we see in journals? Are you writing for yourself? Or is there any prose? I've done some prose. Um, I've published a couple of uh, prose pieces, including an essay about the therapeutic music, um, which is in an anthology um, about you know the intersection of arts and medicine. Um, I write every single day. Wow. Um, now, that's not necessarily for publication. I kind of do the Jack Kerouac form of writing where I hope there's something there, but I, I need structure. And if I only wrote when I felt inspired, I don't know, months could go by. Now, having said that, COVID, which felt like the greatest opportunity ever, was impossible for me. I mean, my writing was still there, but it like was reduced down to a few lines, like fragments. And I just you know, felt speechless. Mm. I just think that particularly people who have a strong kind of empathic muscle had a hard time with COVID. At least I did. And it's very difficult for me to write about anything when, you know, there's close to 600,000 people dead. Um, and actually in the same vein, the book that you already mentioned, Fishing Secrets of the Dead, I didn't write that book while my husband was dying of cancer. I spent 14 months as a caregiver for my husband, and I didn't write a word. Wow. Um, it was only about six months after he died that I was able to then go back to what had happened and start to write it down. And I think that might be the case with COVID. Wow. Um, Stephen King wrote a book, I think, called On Writing, about writing and his process. And if, even if people don't like his writing... I think that book is at least, at the very least, interesting, but potentially even valuable. Do you need a certain setting or like literal setup of a desk or some type of a, an atmosphere that has to stay consistent in order to write? Pretty much, mm. yeah. I have a writing space in the back of the house, but it has a window that looks at the river. Oh, wow. And every single morning, I go up there with my cup of coffee, and I have to do it before I check email or do anything else because I can't allow myself to become distracted. I do, and actually, I stole this from Mary Oliver. Um, I read Rumi. Um, there's there's a book of um, Rumi that's like one a day, yeah. little poems of Rumi's. And when I read about Mary Oliver, who on her deathbed next to her was this copy, of, this well-worn copy. Of, of Rumi's poetry, I searched um, used bookstores because I wanted to find an old one, an old, you know, tattered copy that I could refer to every morning. And so I start my day with Rumi and then I try to write in response to Rumi. Like I just use that as my prompt. Mm. Um, and I've been doing that for a number of years now. 
It reminds me of Patti Smith um, in her writing and in her like social media presence. She's always, it's like in movies when people leave Easter eggs for people to kind of find these like sort of hidden things. She's always um, posting like this is uh, Bolaño's chair. This is like this artist's book or something. And it's often people I don't know about. And then I have to like go deeper in and find it. Um, But yeah, that reminds me of her. You mentioned the river. So I'm really curious about Chestertown and and location. Um, Of what I know of it, we have the Chester River. There's also the Chesapeake Bay. In my travels, I've found that there are landscape and physical attributes of places that become almost like a way of life, like, like dominating, like... You know, we're going we're going to the lake and everyone knows what that means. And that's a thing you do, and that's like the thing to do. How prevalent do you think the water is in the lives of people that live here? It probably varies. Um it's certainly very prevalent for me. Um, but I have to say, you know, when I first moved here as a young person, I lived downtown and you know, the local bar was probably more important to me than mm. the river. But the minute I got out on that river and, you know, the sort of the turning point for me, I would go out on friends would have boats and I'd go out and it was fun and it was about drinking beer and, you know, it was great. And I bought my own boat um, in 1988. Uh, I got drunk at a Labor Day picnic and somebody (laughs) was selling a 13 foot aluminum runabout with a 35 horse Johnson on it. And I was like, yeah. And... And so for the first time, I ventured out on the river by myself. And it's a very different experience when you do it by yourself. You got to learn a lot really fast, you know, and I can tell you, I picked up a lot of crab pots in my prop. I learned how to pour Coca-Cola on a battery that was dead. I, you know, and even riding around the river (laughs) in a boat that had leaky rivets. So (laughs) I was taking on water the whole time. I mean, it was kind of a disaster, but it was a great introduction to the river. And after that, it's almost like those leaky rivets allowed that water to seep into me. I mean, my life was never the same after that. I was never without a boat. And I really, my preferred way of boating was by myself for a really, really long time. And then gradually I started to kind of bring friends into it and it became more of a social thing, like let's go out for a dinner cruise or, you know, and I still enjoy that. But um, now I don't even need actually to get out on it because I feel like, you know, it's it's with me all the time. Mm. And so for me, it's really important. And I, I know that to be true for a lot of people here. I would imagine that there's some people, maybe some college students, you know, that come here and their life is what we say on the hill, you know, which is kind of ironic because if you consider that a hill, (laughs) you haven't traveled much, but we call the college the hill. Um, And probably their life revolves around that. Um, Now, I did teach an eco-poetry class, um, I guess about six years ago now, for the college. And I... They said, we want you to teach, you know, nature poetry. And I said, well, let me think about how I could make that meaningful for this generation of students. And I said, and I want to teach it on a boat. And they were like, hmm, okay, sure. We've got this float boat, you know. So um, that was a really great experience for me. And I, you know, I think it was life-altering for a lot of the students. Mm. And it was their first real experience, you know, getting out on the river. Like, we learned, like, okay, how do you tell if the tide is running in or running out? 
You know, what do you do if you're running out of gas? You know, like we made that part of the class. And um, it was really fun. That's awesome. It was a great opportunity. I'm hugely grateful to have had the chance to do that. And it was the whole semester. We were only, it was the fall semester, and there was only one class where we couldn't get out because of the weather. It was so lucky. Wow. You know, growing up on Long Island, obviously we're an island. I think it's from north to south, maybe like 15 miles, although it's quite long. Um, And so in music and bands, like there would be a lot of, uh, boat imagery, uh, lighthouses would show up a lot because of out east in Montauk. And a lighthouse is literally a beautiful thing to see at, at night. Um, but it's also sort of a metaphor for like safety and hope and, you know, bringing ships to shore. Is it fair to say that in your writing, the river and the animals that you reference are both metaphor and like a literal meaning? Sure. Um, because I think metaphor and literal meaning are almost really one. Um, mm. In my work, I sort of go for a, a kind of seamless, um, seamless quality. In other words, I don't ever want to be kind of creating a construct. I want to be doing a deeper dive than that. Um, and I'm no expert in critical theory, but Somebody referred to it as deep image. Um, so to me, maybe it's more about imagery than metaphor because mm. metaphor feels a little bit um, contrived. I don't set out necessarily to, to set that up, even though I think that there's plenty of metaphorical resonance in the poems. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, you mentioned the at one point being interested in, in the bar downtown. Oh, uh, yeah. How has... Chestertown changed in the time that you've been here? Chestertown has changed um, quite a bit. It still has its essential core. There's no question about that. Um, Everything that I fell in love with about Chestertown is still here. I think, um, you know, the kind of... Um, the older culture of the watermen, the farmers, um, the working people... Uh, that was more prevalent when I came here in 76. There was a deep divide at that time between the college and um, and the town. And I think the town has changed. I think the college has changed. Um, and I think that the population, even, you know, even back then in the 70s, there were people who were coming down with second homes, you know, from Philadelphia and D.C. Um, but that sort of picked up. Mm. Um, and so... It has that, and that has changed the culture, but, um, you know, mostly really in in pretty good ways. Um, I think Chestertown was such a backwater, uh, and that saved it, you know, for a really long time. But there came a time when it needed to change, and I think that a lot of the people, quote, from away, um, have been change agents and, um, and done a lot of good. So, you know, it's it's changed. It'll continue to change, um, and I guess it would be crazy to think that any small town in America is going to look the same over. Gosh, I can't even think about how many years I've been here now—more than thirty. Um, so of course, you know, I've seen a lot of change. Also, I was married to a native, so my husband Kay Wood Hathaway, who who died uh, like twenty more than twenty years ago now, twenty-one years ago. Um, but he was from here. Mm. And so being married to him and working at the college at the same time, 
was really interesting because I could see the the sharp divide between you know the the culture of the quote native, um, and um, and it, and I've always been fascinated, just like my fascination with Italy. You know, I mean, I love anything that's indigenous or you know seems to be, have risen naturally from the landscape instead of being you know transplanted. But there's value to both. So that's a really interesting uh, duality. Because I think I was, my brain's always popping when people are talking on here, and I was thinking that yeah, most of the art I think I really appreciate out of New York City came out of like a very working class atmosphere, and I think that's really good for informing the type of writing and music, uh, and even like film topics that I like. Um, but at the same time, here of of people that I've met, there's a lot of Retirees from like Annapolis or DC, um, coming from the world of politics or defense and things like that, and often the people I'm talking to have incredible stories because they've been all over. Uh, I had dinner last night with a gentleman and in, in, in our family who lived in in Saudi Arabia and was working in oil, and you know is um, a white man who now can translate Persian because he was married to a Persian woman and all that to me is fascinating. So it is really interesting to have both sides of that coin. And I think that makes this place kind of special. I think so too. And I think it makes it richer, you know, just, it makes a richer culture. Um, when I did my MFA, um, I went to, um, Vermont College of Fine Arts in Montpelier and Montpelier, Vermont, I loved because it's so artsy and it's a seat of government and it's got all this stuff going on, but it also has this like working class, mm. blue collar population there that seems, that feels so important. It's like the spine of the place. And so there, it's still there. And so there's this kind of wonderful need for everybody to figure out how to get along mm. and the resulting lifestyle feels just, you know, much richer. Do you get to go back to Italy much? Well, I went I went twice in the last couple of years because of COVID. I, I have obviously canceled all my international travel plans. Yeah. But um, I've been back to Naples, and that was a really fabulous experience. I loved everything about it, um, including the fact that all my friends said, don't go there. It's really scary and dangerous. Really? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you, I, I wanted to come by water because I had left by water. Oh, wow. So I came into the harbor from Sorrento, just, you know, right across the bay into the harbor, Naples. And, you know, there are a lot of sketchy people walking around and you're kind of holding on to your suitcase handle. And, and I had picked a hotel that was right down near the port in a kind of sketchy neighborhood. And at first I was like, wow, there's graffiti everywhere. This is like a little bit like a third world country. Um, and of course, there's an enormously high unemployment rate in Naples. Um, it's, it's struggled ever since World War II to get back on its feet. So there's a reason, you know, why it looks, quote, sketchy, you know, to suburban me. But um, within a couple of hours, I thought, I was born here, you know, and I'm not going to be intimidated by this. And I didn't revel in it. And I just had the best time. And including I had a cab driver who, who, you know, as cab drivers are bound to do in Naples, tried to rip me off. And I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, and it was, I don't know, it was supposed to be a 10 euro fare. And it was, he was trying to charge me 13, Mm -hmm. tredici. And my boyfriend who was with me at the time was like trying to get out of the cab when he figured out there was this conflict. And when I told him later that the guy wanted 13 euro instead of 10, he's like, 
good grief. Why did you give him the extra three euro? And I said, because I was born here. I will not be treated like a tourist. So um, anyway, I love Naples and I highly recommend it. I never saw another American tourist in Naples. Really? Canadians, you know, Germans, all kinds of tourists, but not a lot of Americans because there's this perception that it's, you know, scary. I never knew that. Yeah, I mean, uh, lots of parts of Italy. I, then I went to Sicily the following year, and of course, the same thing in Palermo. And Sicily and Naples have a lot in common. In fact, they used to be part of one, quote, kingdom. Um, and, you know, it's, boy, if you like gritty and you like real people, you're going to find them, you know? I, that's really interesting you say that. I connected that. We um, finally, now we're getting back out, and we're going to go to Iceland. My, my partner and I, we're going to go to Iceland in August. Um, but it, the places I've gone in parts of Europe, I've really loved, um, but sort of similar to what maybe Naples sounds like. It doesn't scratch like a certain itch that I have. So I'll go places and people are like, well, why are you going there? And, you know, it's not a, I'm not going to take pictures for like social media. It's not like a, like what people call like poverty porn or something, but I think it's sort of what you were maybe alluding to that there's sort of, there's an authenticity to hard living type of places. Um, and that sort of grittiness, it's like, it's why I like bars where you can like smell the beer that was poured out in the seventies. And it's still like, <laughs> it's still, uh, evaporating out of the wood nowadays. Um, I don't know. There is just something about that, that scratches an itch that a lot of other places don't. Uh, and it's why I keep going back to what maybe people consider sketchy. <laughs> well, sketchy I think areas. places when they become gentrified, there's a kind of um, homogenous feel to it, mm. you know, that um, there's just a layer of something um, that is sort of opaque. And now you want to see through that. Yeah. So it's fun to go to places where that's still very much in evidence. So, you know, I, and by the way, also alongside that, you know, the greatest archaeological museum, I mean, the art treasures in mm. Naples, and they're very, it's a very intimate experience to go to those museums because in Naples, like they don't have, things aren't under glass and they're not heavily guarded. It's wow. like, you know, it's like this is the art of the people, you know. And so there's some guy smoking a cigarette next to this statue. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, you know. But that's Naples, you know. That's yeah. just, um, and it's been there a long time, you know, and, and you can feel it. Did you do readings in Ireland? I did. So I traveled three times to Ireland um, with the late, great Tom McHugh, um, who had befriended Brendan Flynn, was an English teacher in the west of Ireland that wanted his students to have a richer experience because they lived in a very isolated part of the world. And so, I don't know, like 30 years ago now, he started inviting his friends from America to come over that were musicians and artists and poets. And he created a 10-day festival there, an arts festival. And Tom McHugh, I, I think, participated you know, from the get-go and in almost every year went over there and would bring different you know, friends, musician friends. Mm. And so um, he invited me to come with my harp. Um, and the I think it was the third year I went, um, my book had just come out. Uh, maybe that was the second year. But anyway, it, right around the same time, Fishing Secrets of the Dead came out. So I did um, readings and I also did um, some music along with, um, you know, with McHugh, which is his... his uh, his itinerary at, the, at this festival is to play every bakery, mental institution, oh, wow. um, elementary school. Uh, it's just an amazing experience. You would play three or four gigs a day. 
and um, it is crazy. So it was like deep immersion, um, and it was fabulous. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, the harp is quite uncommon, right? How did you pick that up? Actually, McHugh deserves some credit there too because of his connection with the Clifton folks. Um, I was introduced to the harp through somebody who was visiting from Ireland who was actually from New Jersey, but she'd gone over there, you know, and fallen in love and married an Irishman. And um, she brought a lever harp um, into my life, which I'd seen, you know, the big symphony harps, but I'd never seen like the older version of the lever harp. And so um, I just felt incredibly called to play it. And I had studied piano and had a musical background. But um, then Tom McHugh invited me to go over to House of Musical Traditions one day to run some errand that he was running and, you know, ride along. And when we got there, there was a harp there. And I just started fooling around with it. And I said, if I can figure out how to play this thing, I'm going to buy it. And I think I was playing it upside down, but I could make, you know, a nice sound and kind of figure it out. So I bought it and I walked in the house with it. And my husband, who at that time had pretty recently been diagnosed with cancer and was home. And um, I said to Tom McHugh, now never tell Kaywood how much I paid for this. Because here is an instrument I've never even seen before. I don't know how to play. So it was kind of extravagant. But um, <laughs> he, I walked in the door with it and he said, good God, what'd you pay for that? 1800 bucks? <laughs> I had paid 1800 bucks. <laughs> no way. Exactly. So... Then, little did we know, through the duration of his illness, I played that harp, you know, learning. But the wonderful thing about the harp is even learning, it's beautiful. You know, you can't make really a bad sound on a harp. And he loved it. And it meant so much to him um, with everything that he was going through that after he died, um, I decided I was going to become certified to go into hospice settings and hospital settings and play therapeutic music because I saw the effect it has for, you know, addressing people's anxiety about you know imminent death, um, pain. It's great for reducing pain. Um, I was so. wondering if you like see people change or even get emotional while you're playing in, in those settings. You know, um, I'm more likely to get emotional right afterwards. Mm. I feel it's really important for me to be uber calm mm. because I'm trying to bring that energy to them. And so I have had really emotional experiences um, and and afterwards would often come home and kind of break down. But um, the experiences have always been great. I never had a bad experience. And in some that, you know, I'll never forget as long as I live. Um, like just one short story, this was at hospice, and there was a woman who asked me when I came in to play with her. She had just come in that day and was still, you know, very vibrant. And, and she told me her favorite hymn, which is, um, a piece by Dvorak that has been now um, also sort of, it's, it's treated as a hymn, but it's also kind of part of um, almost you know, traditional music, and, um, which I did know, and, um, but I didn't know it by heart. And I said, I'm so sorry I didn't bring any music because I try to only just play by heart when I'm playing. I don't want a, like a music stand between me and a, and a, and a client. Um, but I'll tell you what, when I come back next week, I'll bring it and I'll play it for you. So I came back a week later, and I, I brought the music. And when I walked in the door, they said, oh, we're so glad you're here. Miss so-and-so has been asking about you and asking about you. But I'm sorry to say that she's, you know, she's kind of, you know, kind of um, gone to a different place now, and I don't think she'll know you're there. 
And I said, oh, I'll play it for her anyway. You know, I mean, we learned that hearing is the last sense you lose. So I came into the room where she was all alone in the bed, and she had that kind of heavy breathing going that told me, you know, not like a death rattle, but just this, you know, she was unconscious for sure. Mm. And um, and I said, hi, I don't know if you remember me, but I was here last week and you wanted this piece, so I brought the music and I'm going to try to play it for you now. And I started to play and eight measures into it, this woman who was visibly and audibly in a different place rose up from that wow. and said, beautiful. I mean, I get chills now. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, what it took for her to come back for that moment to, tell, to give me that. What a gift. And I've never forgotten that. So you never doubt that, you know, that the music is powerful. And it's not about you. It's the music. That's amazing. Do you write your own pieces or...? I try to do a lot of improvisatory stuff mm. because wow. um, you don't know what you're going to face. And... An interesting fact that you're taught in the training is that you don't want to play necessarily recognizable tunes. If somebody's very close to death, your goal is to kind of relax them and let them feel that it's okay to let go. So you're not going to play, you know, Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. You're not going to play even necessarily, you know, in this case, I knew she loved this hymn and had asked for it. But ordinarily, you play music that sort of reflects the rhythm of their breathing Um or their pulse. And if you're playing, for example, sometimes in the ICU, you know, they have vital signs on the screen, not in hospice, but in a hospital setting. And so you can actually see, um, you can watch their blood pressure drop. Wow. And you can see that their breathing will fall in line with, with the music, with the rhythm. So you have to be extremely nimble because if you're playing the wrong thing and you're not getting the response that you want, you need to shift right in the middle of a piece to a different thing. And so in order to do that in a way that feels fluid and not stilted, you've got to become pretty brave with improvisation. Wow. Do you have anything recorded? Um, I have my demo tape for my, when I got my certification. Um, that's the only thing I can think of that's, that's recorded that's in that mode. Okay. Well, maybe um, now that things are opening up, I don't know. Will, will you ever like, like play live other, you know, in a, or like a show setting? Yeah, actually, I've got a couple of gigs coming up. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I'm doing an improv night with, um, with Joe Holt, the jazz piano player, oh. at the Mainstay. They just, they're just starting live performances again. Is that in Rock Hall? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a wonderful venue. If you haven't been there, you've got to check it out. Yeah, my, my dad talks about it, but I haven't been. Yeah, it's almost my favorite place on the planet. And Joe Holt is one of the most gifted musicians I've ever met. And his whole thing is, because he's a jazz player, it's improv even though he plays more than just jazz. He can basically play anything. So he has a Monday night series that went on hold for COVID, or, or maybe he was probably doing some of it streaming, but now it's going back live, where he invites a different artist to collaborate with him. And so you bring your repertoire, and then the two of you try to, like, just in real time, you know, sometimes with some preparation, mind you, but still, in the moment, you are riffing off of him and he's riffing off of you. Oh, that's amazing. And we do it with the harp and piano, but also with my poems. So I read a poem and he creates a musical setting for it. And he's not, as he says, I'm not a word guy. So he usually doesn't know much about the poem. I mean, I might give him a few visual cues, like picture Monet's garden, you know. Um, and then you'll hear like a snatch of Claire de Lune and whatever he's playing. But um, 
the cool thing is I realized last time we did this, which is a couple of years ago, that not only the poems change what he's playing, but listening to him respond, I change the way I read the poem. Not the words, but the way I feel it. And so, hence, the way I read it. So it's really, it's really fun. When will, I, that, when will that next one be? That's August 23rd, Monday, August 23rd. Cool. I think it's at 7 o'clock. And, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. If you're in Chestertown, you should definitely check it out. Because, yeah, I mean, is Joe amazing. is just an amazing talent. And he does this every Monday night with different, like, people from all different musical idioms. It's really, really fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I should, I should actually... Chat with him too. He sounds like he'd be also a fascinating oh, guest. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Oh, cool. Really interesting guy. Um, can people expect uh, another book anytime soon or what are you working on? So I do have, I've got two manuscripts that, you know, if I was worth my salt, I would have finished during COVID and they would be out by now. Um, but I have told myself I'm going to do that. Um, and I also, so most of, most of the poems, um, well, they're two different kinds of books. One is more of like growing up with Brothers Mint Machines, you know, it's kind of looking back, a lot of family stuff. And then the other one is more river oriented. Mm. Um, and I'm also working on some like stringing together some of the little fragments that I wrote during COVID. So I think that at least one book should come out of those potentials. Um, we'll see. Cool. And I hope before too long. Um, I'm going to link to all your stuff. So people listening, um, I think it's on Amazon and WordPress, right? Yeah. So I'll link to that in your website so people can find that directly in whatever player they're listening to. Um, is it okay to ask you if you might read a poem or two? Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I was kind of just going to ask you to pick one <laughs> or two. <Okay. laughs> I know you've got a whole uh, repertoire, but... Um, Actually, if it's handy, um, the one that I mentioned before, growing up... Uh, oh, you know, I with, don't have that with me because I don't think it's in any of my books. Okay, yeah, I read it on the internet. <laughs> but that's okay. It, um, anything really would, would feel special to me. Yeah. Um, well, this is my um, like greatest hit. Okay. Okay, So, and I think it's in At the Narrows. But this came out of the eco-poetry class I taught where I you know, stress to my students, like, you know, read Patty Ann Rogers about mud, you know, I mean, mm. poetry, nature poetry isn't about just like pretty, you know, being pretty. So I challenged myself and I, I was in an attic office at the literary house on the Washington College campus and the windows were just lined with stink bugs, mm. you know, millions of them. It was one of those years where we had a really bad infestation. So here's the poem that came out of that. Stink bugs. Unwilling immigrants, all overcoat and banded leg, I find you pacing up and down the edges of my window pane. Packed and shipped by accident from some Asian port, you gather here as if a passing plane might take you home. One who has overturned on the ledge below now waves like an old uncle whose body has become a burden too heavy to set right. Is it wrong to hate you? Helpless, except your stink, a pungent smell described as like cilantro, meant to keep the birds and lizards off your back. I cannot kill you, though I'm told that liquid soap will do the trick. Instead, I leave you dreaming at the glass, where an intermittent buzz and flutter 
will remind me how far away home is and how we all want to go there and how some people love cilantro and others think it tastes like soap. I love it. If people don't know, stink bugs, when, when squished, I guess that's their defense against being killed, are quite pungent. And I have mistakenly taken them home to Brooklyn in my car because <laughs> they are quite prevalent around here. Yeah. I love that. They're not nearly as bad now as they were a couple of years ago, but ugh, you still, and I still don't kill them. I escort them outside. Mm. But um, yeah, they're kind of gross. <laughs> but even gross stuff, you know, if we're going to be eco-poets, we have to feel connected with everything. So Yeah, I love it. Um, here's one that... Um, you know, because it's a little waterier. Um, this is based on a little boat trip that uh, I took. I frequently would go up um, Langford Creek. And one summer, maybe it was fall, but actually crickets are in this poem, so it must have been August or, or September. And um, there, I had heard that people had had spotted a dolphin in the creek, kayakers. Oh. And um, so I went up that creek and wondered, you know, what I would find. And knowing that if a dolphin was that far up, that far from the bay, it was not good. Mm. It was not going to end well. So I wasn't sure what I would find or, or how I would feel about it. But here's the poem that resulted from that little boat trip. The Lost Dolphin. I found her once as my boat drifted in the late light of a small creek. The wind had dropped the way it does when dusk settles. The last grasses leaned over a mirrored edge. Out of nowhere she rose, breaking the water's silver skin with her own, cresting a puckered dorsal, then gone beneath circles of sky. I wasn't certain I had seen her until she arched again, swirling bubbles, puffing a soft spume from her blowhole. I knew she was off course, so far from the bay, and the tide now threatening to strand us both. But I stayed to watch her rise, submerge in slow orbit, crickets chanting, a last touch of sun, her beautiful bulk nudging wake through the marsh grass, a lift, a dip, my hands pale as bone. Here was the heart of the world shuttling its ancient breath between upper and lower chambers all muscle and shine, even to the end. That's beautiful. This is a little more, a little more sober poem. No, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. I, I won't make you read through more, but that, uh, that's wonderful. Um, thanks for doing that. Sure. <laughs> um, so like I said, everyone listening can go to the show notes and they can find more about you. If they're in this area on the Eastern Shore in August, I can link to... The date for that show as well, and I'm going to try to come to that. That'll be like right after we come back from Iceland, so that sounds great. I would recommend you come, and I highly recommend you talk to Joe Holt, a very, very interesting and immensely talented cool. human being. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, it's always an honor. It's I find myself in people's homes very often, and I say this ad nauseum, but like I would never have these experiences without this silly podcast. So, um, you know, just thanks so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And thanks for putting up with the ringing telephone, uh, cat grabbing your, <laughs> your equipment. Um, 
you know, it's definitely catches catch can around here. But anyway, this has been a real pleasure. Cheers. All right, Voyagers, that's a wrap on episode number 233 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much to Meredith for having me over her house. I had a great time having a chat with her and learning more about her story. I had a great weekend. In addition to checking out the area and interviewing Meredith, I was on my dad's radio show down in Chestertown. So it was cool to be on the other side of the microphone. A little bit weird, but I got to share some travel stories Many of those you've heard already in some of the first couple of episodes that I've done on this podcast and in some of the solo episodes. But if you check out my social media, I will give you a link to that uh, radio program. I think it drops uh, this upcoming Sunday on Father's Day, but I'll give you a link to the episode so you could check it out if you want and you know, give my dad some love. All right, lots more stuff in the works here. I will catch you very soon. Please, 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 please take care of each other. Peace.